Let me take you back four or five weeks when we began this series. Um, we've been asking the question, are you a fan or are you a follower? And uh, remember, we defined fan as an enthusiastic admirer, one who dresses up in the stands, one who cheers on his team, sometimes will boo his team, gets kind of fickle one way or the other. In fact, I went to a, a Stockton Thunder game this weekend with my son and a couple other friends, and uh, there are a lot of fans in those stands, dressed up in their jerseys and some face paint, and you can tell that they were for their teams. Um, fans, though, fans can be kind of fickle. Sometimes they show up, sometimes they don't. Followers, however... Followers follow no matter what, and followers follow anywhere, anytime. That's what followers do. And so we talked about that the first week, and then the second week we talked about how the invitation that Jesus gives us to follow him is for anyone. It's an open invitation, but while it's for anyone, it means your everything that you put into it. And then two weeks ago, we talked about open intimacy or, or, or choosing to have open intimacy with God, and that's his desire for us, which, by the way, these messages are all online. You can go there and listen to them if you like, which is how I heard Pastor Mike's message last week, because I was not here, but driving back from vacation, we listened to Pastor Mike, did a great job sharing about Nicodemus and how he went from being a fan to being a follower. And uh, so today, what I want to do is kind of catch back up with what I talked about two weeks ago, and that was in Mark chapter 10, dealing with the rich young ruler. And so if you were here a couple weeks ago, let me just kind of catch us up on what was taking place. This um, man came before Jesus, basically was asking for a system, a checkbox, saying, how can I have eternal life? In fact, how can I have it without having to give up anything else in my whole life? And when Jesus sees that that was on the level that he was on, Jesus kind of goes along with that. And he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 19, he says, all right, that's what you want. You want those answers? Let me give them to you. He says, you know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud on your father and mother. And what he's giving him is the checklist that he's kind of looking for. Because he knows that the man knows these commandments. These are commandments 5 through 9 of the Ten Commandments. And so Jesus kind of meets him on that same level because he knows that that's kind of what he is asking for. And the guy kind of interrupts him and says, you know what? I've done that. I've kept all these things. That's in verse 20. He says, I've done these. In fact, since I was in a youth group, I've been doing these kinds of things. I'm a good kid. I have kept the list. And then don't miss what happens next. Jesus kind of changes the tone because he sees that he misses it. And he says in verse 21, Jesus, looking at him, what's the next two words there? He what? He loved him. He loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come. And then follow. Where it says there in verse 21, the beginning part, he looked at him and he loved him. And because he loved him, Jesus was bold enough to tell him the truth. I, I hope you have those kind of people in your life. I hope you have kind of the people who I call, you got food on your face, dude, kind of people, 
right? That you're sitting out to lunch and you're with a group of people and you got something kind of dribbling down your cheek or you got some lettuce between your teeth or something like that. They're not afraid to say, hey, dude, kind of knock that off, right? I mean, the other ones are just kind of looking away, hoping it's going to take care of itself and not do anything about it, right? But they're the kind of people who step up and say, hey, you, you, you got something there. They're not going to talk about you. They're going to talk to you. And they're going to do it, though, in love, which is how Jesus did this. And then when he shares with him and he begins to talk to him his love, he says, you know what, man? There is one thing that you still lack. And you can just kind of see the picture of all this going on where the man like whips out his pen and he gets ready with his piece of paper and he says, okay, okay, here it comes. Here's my answer. The 11th commandment is on its way. Give it to me, Jesus. You give it to me and I will do it. In fact, I will do it better than you have ever seen it done before. I'm ready. Okay, eternal life. I'm ready for it. And Jesus says, go and sell everything. And you just kind of picture the man's like, oh, uh, that's not what I was looking for, right? <laughs> kind of maybe begins to put the piece of paper and the pencil away. Jesus goes gone and says, sell everything, give it to the poor. Oh, wow. And then, and then you come follow me is what Jesus says. And you can just picture the man saying, wow, that's not the answer I was looking for. And really, here, even in 2013, think about it. Is that how you would answer someone? If they said, how do I have eternal life? Would you list those things? Would you say, well, you got to, you know, you got to sell everything. You got to give it to the poor. And then you come follow you. We probably wouldn't do that, would we? And, and so I scratch my head. I'm even thinking here, you know, is that the right answer? Jesus, do you have the right answer with this one? Is that really what you want us to do? But if you look deeper into it, you see, of course, it's the right answer because Jesus looks always deeper. And Jesus knew one thing about this man, and he knows this one thing about us as well, and that is that God doesn't just want us to work the system. That's what fans do. God wants us to go deeper. He wants our love. He wants our loyalty. He wants our life. That's what followers do. In fact, this message I'm going to give here today is probably not a real cheery message. This message I'm going to give you today is um, about the cross. It's about the hard things of the walk of the faith. Something that one of our members here who's in his 80s has been a part of church for years and years. I would call him an extremely mature Christian. He's been on our Dakinet board, been, been here for years. He came up and he said, you are talking about some radical, radical stuff, aren't you? He said, yeah, but isn't that what Jesus asked us to do? He looked back and he kind of looked with a smile like, yeah, that's exactly what Jesus is asking us to do. We just don't talk about it very much. We don't talk about these deeper life, life call that Jesus has upon our lives, that eternal life and what we talk about as eternal life isn't just about a destination. It is about a relationship <clears throat> that starts here and now. Think about that. We offer eternal life. We say, well, you want eternal life? Here's how you get it. Now when you die, now you're going to be in heaven. Eternal life doesn't just happen and start when you die. Eternal life starts now. We don't have some 11th commandment that says, hey, you do this, you check off the box, and you're in, and then you can go do whatever you want. In fact, if you do that, you'll create a living hell in your life. I guarantee it. You want to know how to have a living hell? Let me tell you how to have a living hell. You might want to take a note on this one, right? Just give greater loyalty to anything above God while you are here on earth. 
and you will create a living hell for yourself. That's what this man's loyalty was doing. And that's what it will do for us as well. The almighty dollar will get in our way. The almighty lifestyle that I want to live will get in our way. The almighty comfort in how I live will get in our way. And you can see this man saying, Jesus, I want to, I, I want to know how to have this eternal life, but you know what? Um, I, I'll carry a cross. Just kind of make it comfortable on me, Jesus. I mean, don't make it so heavy and so burdensome and so hard to do. It gets in the way of our relationship with God, doesn't it? When what God really desires is that relationship and that eternal life that has already begun. Now you say, how, how, how has eternal life already begun? Let me show you this verse I found out of, of um, John chapter 17, verse 3. Interesting verse. It says, this is eternal life. And this is Jesus praying. He's praying for his disciples. And he's praying for future disciples. He's praying to God the Father. He says, this is eternal life. That they, and he's talking about us, that they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice the order he says that. He says, this is eternal life. That they may know God and that they may know Jesus. And when you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you know God. And when you know God, you know Jesus. You already have started on eternal life. You have already begun. And Jesus goes on to talk about how he is the vine. We're the branches. We're supposed to be linked into him. Don't ever get cut off from that. And what this man discovered here is that about when you find yourself confronted with the truth is that this man, when he heard what Jesus said, he decided, you know what? I would rather be in control and use God than to let God use me and give him my control. See, what he discovered... At that moment, what we discovered and what we look at him and say is that he didn't own his wealth. His wealth owned him. He didn't own his lifestyle. His lifestyle owned him. He didn't own his comfort. His comfort owned him. So much so that, Jesus, that he looks at Jesus and he says, this is God in the flesh. He says, uh, no thank you. I think I have a better plan. Look what it says in verse 22. It says, Disheartened by the saying that Jesus had just given to him to sell everything, give to the poor, then come follow him. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great, what do you have great? Great possessions or wealth. He had great amounts of money. He had, he had it all. He looked good. Basically, he says, Jesus, I have too much stuff to follow you. This money, these possessions, this wealth looks so much more appealing than you, Jesus. So I will just be a fan. I will just sit on the sidelines because following you will cost me too much and I don't want to go there. Let me ask you this question. What does following Jesus cost you? If you've been going through our uh, Not A Fan community groups, and if you've been reading the devotional book and the book that we've given to you, that question would have already come your way. What does following Jesus cost you? Let me tell you about one young man I met five, six years ago. His name is Ryan Heckman. He's a student at UOP. Uh, Ryan had it in his mind that he was going to be a medical doctor. 
Artie was in the pre-med uh, major. Uh, you'll hear him share on this video just exactly kind of the studies that he was involved in. And uh, we pose this question because God has radically changed his life. Last year, begin, uh, end of uh, his senior year, decided, you know, I don't want to go into grad school. I, I don't want to be in the medical field anymore. God's got something else for me to do. And so Ryan began to listen to that. And so we sat down with him and asked him that question, what has following Jesus cost you? Take a look and watch and see what it's cost him. It all started around 7th or 8th grade. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I grew up in a relatively affluent community, was encouraged that I could be whatever I wanted to be. And I liked science, so I figured I'd be a doctor. And as I grew, that idea grew so that it was something that I was pursuing with great fervor by the time I was in high school. People would ask me, they said, have, would, have you ever thought about being a physician's assistant or a nurse? You can be in the trenches, it doesn't take as much sacrifice, and you can be as effective as a healer in many ways. And I thought, no, I want to be a doctor. My goals weren't biblically founded, and I had grown up in a Christian family, but I, I had these plans, and that's what they were. I think I spent a year and a half pretty much burying myself in work. I worked harder, I pushed harder, I was turning into a bitter and an angry person, and it was burning me out. I finally gave God a little bit of room and said, okay, what, what is going on here? What do you want to say? And then he said stuff, and it was the hardest stuff I had heard. He asked me to give up my future. It was something that I hadn't even tasted yet. It was an idol that I had given a decade of my life to, and I hadn't even experienced a tiny little sliver of it. It's like buying a new house and having it burned down before you move in. Through a bit of struggling, I finally said, yes, I can, I can do that. And I didn't take the GRE, and thus closed the door on graduate school. This is halfway through my senior year of college, and I had no plans. I had been lining up getting a master's of biology straight out of an undergraduate of biochemistry, and then that just fell through um, at my own hand. What was even harder was he asked me to give it up without taking it from me the little things that I had had in my mind and I had squelched and, and starved because I had plans, all of a sudden came to life. I, I had just parked this behemoth, you know, of, of career goals on top of them. And when I moved that, all these little things started to take root. And I was going, wow, this is what I have a heart for. This is what I have a passion for. And I can do that now. The doors blew open. I have freedom. Uh, freedom, it's, it's funny, because I didn't realize I, I was in bondage to my pride until I experienced the freedom. Then I had to face questions from other people, people who had rooted for me. My parents didn't understand why I spent $50,000 on a degree I didn't want. My professors who had vouched for me didn't understand why I was bailing on them with no conceivable reason I was at the top of the class. 
And I didn't have answers. All I knew was that Jesus was changing me. It's, it's a little bit scary, and it's not, this is where I was, this is what God's done, this is all the fruit that I have. Now it's just, I had to, I'm, I'm a newborn. I'm a newborn follower of Jesus. And with that, though, comes so much joy, the joy that my pride had stolen from me, the, the freedom to... To run with God without this ball and chain of, you know, the, the, what I put on myself, I shackled myself. My name is Ryan Heckman, and I am not a fan. Why Ryan did that? Because he wants to live with abandon. Ryan came up to a place in his life and says, God, what do you want from me? And then I'll do it. The interesting part of the story is that Ryan Heckman is right up in our tech booth right now running our sound. He he pushed the button for his own video. Yeah. We've given him an opportunity over the last year to, to help our ministry, to grow our ministry, to serve in a way that he feels called. He has been involved in our tech, in our sound, in our video. Uh, he's been involved in uh, our college ministry right now. He helps Pastor JC on Sunday nights with the college ministry. He's been on mission trips with our youth. He's done a number of things to say, God, what do you really want from me? How can I live with abandon for you? Which is really the question that I hope all of us will answer. And he had so many great lines in there. Yeah, it's a little scary. Yeah, you know, God's asking me to give it up, but he wouldn't take it from me. I had to give it to him. You know, we can all find those places in our lives right now. And so what I want to talk about here for the rest of our time together is how comfortable have we made following Jesus? Or how comfortable have we expected following Jesus to be? Because each of us, I think, has in our own mind that, you know what, I'll give my life to Jesus and then I'll kind of fit right in line with what he wants me to do and life will turn out great. Not always so. In fact, that was never promised. Look at the verse out of Luke 9, 23. And if you've been been in the community groups, you'll see this and you'll recognize this and hopefully you've memorized it. It says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, how often? Daily. And follow me. And when Jesus said that, I mean, the first century hearers knew that that was a tough challenge. I think 21st century hearers, that's us, we don't view it as a tough challenge. We view it as an add-on. We view it as a, well, I'll stick with him as long as Jesus can do some things for me. Uh Uh-uh, no way. That's not what a follower is about. In fact, look at that phrase, take up your cross. How sterile have we made that today? I I think we've made the cross a very comfortable thing. In fact, I can remember back in my home church, 
there was a cross up in front of our baptistry, much like this one, that had a very, very sterile cross. It was, it was wooden, but it was varnished, it was sanded, it was, it was just made so perfect. If you'll come up and look at this cross, you can't see it real well um, from maybe where you're seating and the red light kind of doesn't highlight this, but that cross is a very rugged cross. That, very, that cross is a very wooden, beat-up kind of cross. That's much more like the cross that Jesus died on was, much more like the cross that he was referring to. A cross that is rugged, a cross that is hard. In fact, if somebody from the first century would come and be in our 21st century today, if they would like time transport, if they walked in here today, seeing people with crosses around their neck would cause them to question, what in the world are you doing with that? I mean, seeing us with, you know, like, like crosses hanging on the walls or maybe dangling from your earlobes or, or having a cross on a greeting card, right? Hey, here's a cross. Here's a happy thing. That would not compute to them. It was a symbol of torture, a symbol of death. In fact, a symbol of excruciating death. It would be a little bit like if you came in here next week and you were, you know, wearing a guillotine or with a necklace around your neck. Just kind of had it dangling there like, hey, isn't that kind of cool, right? Or, or an electric chair kind of dangling from your ear as, as, as earrings. Right? Or you sent a greeting card and it had one of those lethal injection syringes on it. Like, hey, happy day, right? I mean, we just don't do that. That would be strange. That would be foolish. That would be kind of shameful to do that. Well, God takes what the world says is strange and foolish and shameful and demeaning, and he says, watch this. Let me turn this into the power of salvation. In fact, if you can flip over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me read a few verses that Paul, Paul gathers this information. He gathers this thought. He really plays this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The world looks at it one way. We look at it another. Look at verse 22 and 24. It says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. I mean, who else but God can take the cross that represents defeat and turn it into a symbol of victory, right? Who else but God can take the cross that represents guilt and turn it into a symbol that represents incredible, incredible grace, Who else but God can take the symbol of the cross that represents condemnation and turn it into a symbol that represents the absolute freedom, the greatest freedom that you could ever have in your life? Who else but God can take that symbol of the cross that represents pain and suffering and turn it into a symbol that represents healing and hope? Who else but God can take the cross and turn a symbol that represents death or represented death and now turn it into a symbol that represents life? I often go to the hospital. When I go to the hospital, I'll see a cross above a patient's bed. That doesn't mean they're dying. That's a symbol there of hope. That's a symbol there of a future. And what the world looks at that and says, well, you know what? The ultimate moment of God's weakness in reality was God's greatest strength. That is what he did through the cross. 
and you're only feeling that you have on your outline, you can fill this in, it's in the middle of your page, is that what God did for the cross, he can do for you as well. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the cross. That what God did for the cross, he can do for you. That when you're at your weakest, is what God's at his strongest. When he takes the world and he turns it upside down and says, when you are weak, that's when you are strong. In fact, verse 27, same passage, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Ultimately, the cross is a symbol of death. You think about what took place on that cross where they would take the hands of Jesus and nail them to the cross or the wrist area, the wrist region. They would take the feet and nail them to the cross. They would take a spear and thrust it through the side of Jesus when he was up on that cross. And Jesus says, hey, that's what I want you to do. I want you to die as well. I want you to take up your cross and you follow me. You die. You give up your desires. You give up your goals. You give up your pursuits. You give up your plans and you come and follow follow me. That's the end of you. It's the beginning of me. Now, that message doesn't always get preached on Sunday, does it? Because that message isn't a lot of fun to talk about. That message is one where it's like, well, you know what? We know following Jesus is kind of in there somewhere. No, this message means you have to die. You are a dead man walking. You are a dead woman walking. If you're familiar with that term, that's what they call people who are on death row. In fact, sometimes when they will be on death row and head into their execution chair, the guard who walks them through will yell throughout the hall, dead man walking, because there's no reprieve here. They are dead. They are as good as dead. And that's kind of the imagery, kind of a twisted sort of imagery, but the imagery that we are supposed to have, that we are dead women, we are dead men walking, because we are dead to ourselves, we are following Jesus. And that's what God loves to do. He loves to take the most despised and rejected symbol in all of time. He says, if you want to follow me, you take this up. Think it's too uncomfortable? That's what I want for you. You think it's too offensive? Nope, this is what I have for you. And as a result, many who call them fans, many who call themselves fans, have a choice to make. Do we follow? The only way you follow is by picking up that cross and following. But we die to ourselves. And when we die, that may be weak, may look weak, but biblically, that's when we are the strongest. In fact, you may not realize this. As we look to television and media and movies, you know, it's, it's the perfect people who get be in those stories in the movies and on television shows. And we look at those things and we say, you know, that's what I want to be. I want to be someone who, who really has my life together. I think God uses our weaknesses even more than our strengths. I think God uses people who are imperfect. In fact, the reason I know that is you just go through Scripture and you can see person after person after person who is imperfect and God uses them in a great way. Let me just share a few. Abraham was one old dude when God asked him to have a baby, wasn't he? He he was beyond what many of us would think was baby-producing age, but he did it. Jacob was insecure. Leah in the Old Testament, she was unattractive. Scripture highlights that. She was very plain. She was unattractive in her day. Moses, talking, trying to talk, he, stu- he stu- stuttered. He couldn't get his words out. Gideon was poor. Samson, he had pride issues. He was very proud. Rahab, 
You know, you know the story of Rahab? I want to share someday about the story of Rahab. Rahab was immoral. She was a prostitute. But you look at her, the lineage where Jesus came from, it was through the lineage of Rahab. She was involved in that. David had an affair. Elijah was suicidal in his day, and yet God used him. Jeremiah, the prophet, he, not the bullfrog, but the prophet, Jeremiah, he was depressed. That's who he, he was a depressed person. Jonah was disobedient. Naomi, she was a widow. And widows had a severe, a, a huge disadvantage in the biblical days. They had no way of getting by and being supported. John the Baptist, you read about John the Baptist, he was one wild dude, was John the Baptist. He was bizarre. He was strange. And yet God said, I want to use you to foretell my son coming into the world. Peter was impulsive. He was hot-tempered. If we had Peter in here in our day and age, he would be in anger management classes just like that. That's Peter. That's who Peter was. Martha, she was a worrier, kind of worrying about things, trying to get things done. She worried. The Samaritan woman had husband after husband after husband after husband after husband. Yet God approaches, Jesus approaches her and says, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you to share the message in this town. Zacchaeus, he, he was a thief. He was unpopular in his day. Thomas had doubts. Paul, he had poor health in his life. Timothy was timid. And yet... What God did for the cross, he did for each of those people. What God did for the cross, he can do for your life as well. That's how God works. In fact, look at this next passage out of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. says this. But he said to me, and this is Paul talking, My grace, this is God, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in what? In weakness. When you are less, I am more. Goes on to say, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It says in verse 10, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, for when I am weak, then I am, then I am strong. No, not many of us delight in our weaknesses, do we? And we don't like to talk about our weaknesses. In fact, most of us will go to great strengths to kind of disguise those and not talk about this. Kind of like when you're on a job interview and the, you know, the person who's interviewing you says, you know, tell me what's your greatest weakness, right? How do you answer that? I mean, I mean, would you ever step up there and say, well, you know what? I just don't ever get to work on time. It just, it just, it's so hard for me to do that, right? And I procrastinate all the time. And, you know, I don't get along with coworkers very well. In fact, it's been said that I like to gossip a little bit too much, but it's just so much fun. You know, those little titty j- j- bits and juicy gossip things. I just love to do that. Or, or like with your computer, would you ever say, when I have computer problems, I don't call IT, I just like take my hand and I just slap my computer silly. Boom! You know, come on, come on. No! You never do that with your weaknesses. You don't talk about your, what do we say? We say, well, I'm a little bit of a perfectionist, right? Or I'm a workaholic, I'm going to work too much for your company, right? That's what I do. That's kind of, why do we do that? We do that because we're kind of told Don't show your weaknesses in this world. You'll never get ahead if you show that you're weak. But Christ's message, 
It's so countercultural. It says, when you are weak, then you are strong. When you give it all up, that's when you get my blessings. Jesus did not say those words out of Luke 9, 23 flippantly. He didn't. He, he knew exactly what he was saying. And even though the disciples at the time may not have known exactly what that meant, over time, they understood what that meant. I'll tell you why. After Jesus told them to go and share his teachings and teach and baptize people, do you know how some of those disciples died? We know from church history and church tradition that Matthew was killed by the sword in Ethiopia. That's how he died. Mark died in Egypt after being dragged by horses through the streets of Alexandria until he was dead. Peter was crucified, not only crucified like Jesus though was, tradition teaches us that he said, I want to be crucified upside down because I do not consider myself good enough to be crucified like my Lord and Savior. Thomas was stabbed by a spear in India while he was on a missionary trip. Jesus' half-brother Jude was killed by arrows when he refused to deny his faith in Christ. And James was beheaded in the city of Jerusalem. Each of them took on a physical death. Physical death came upon them because of the spiritual life that they had found in Christ. But what they came to know was their lives were not their own. They, They... died to themselves. They were now owned by Christ. They were dead men walking is what they were. And dead men walking are dangerous to this world. Dead men walking can't be controlled by this world. Dead men, dead women who go out and say, you don't own me. God does. That's who God loves to use. In fact, Paul understood this really well when he says in Romans 12:1, he says, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. You have died. You are a sacrifice. Now you're alive in Christ. That's how you're to present yourself. That's your spiritual act of worship. You are dead to yourself. You are a sacrifice. And in 1 Corinthians 15:31, you know what Paul says? He says, I die how often? Every day. Every day, I wake up and I die to myself. I wake up and I die to what I want to do. I'm alive to what God wants to do. Man, I had to search that own truth in my own life. Do I do that? I mean, how often do I wake up and feel like, ah, this is a day that I have an agenda, things that I want to do? Often, most times, that's why we open uh, open up this word and we see, oh, no. Remember, God's in control. I'm not. Remember, I'm dying to myself. You know what that means? It means you're not controlled by anything of this world. It means you're not owned by anything of this world. In fact, you know, you look back at the rich young ruler in Mark 10. He was owned by the things of the world. If he was truly honest with himself, he would have to admit that his wealth owned him and he wanted to use Jesus. Let me say that again. His wealth owned him and he wanted to use Jesus rather than letting Jesus own him and use his wealth for Jesus, right? 
I mean, that's why I feel so blessed to be a part of this congregation. Pastor Jim has done such an awesome job of bringing most of us to the place of saying, God, our finances are not ours, they're yours. You give them to us, and we represent that by giving an offering every Sunday. And God has just sustained this church and blessed this church because you have understood that, that those finances are not yours, they're God's, and how God wants to use them. And when we put those in the offering plate, they go to missionaries around the world. I've spo- I spoke to one in Europe this last week who said, Thank you to your congregation. Thank you for how you allow us to share the gospel in Hungary. Those, those, mission, those dollars that you put in those offering plates go to help with those outreaches that we have. They go to help uh, with our costume carnival that we do here and sharing the gospel in little ways of getting people on the campus. They go in so many ways. And it's because people like us come along and say, Okay, God, I could do a lot with this, my agenda, but I could, you could do even more with this if it's your agenda. But the rich young ruler decided, you know what? I don't want to die to myself. I don't want to deny myself. I don't want to pick up a cross because that cross was not comfortable enough. In fact, the words, I die daily, were not even in his vocabulary. Didn't want to do it. There's something very interesting I've learned about um, dead people. And that is, um, I've done a lot of funerals. I've been in the room when um, people have taken their final breaths of life. I've, I've been uh, called to a home before the coroners come to take the body out. I've done a number of open casket funerals, even right here. A, a, a dead body there, and I've done a funeral for them. Here's what I've observed, and I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I've observed this. People who are dead don't seem to care what other people think about them. Right? It's true. Don't seem to care. They don't care about their clothes. They don't care about getting the promotions. They don't care about how much money they have in their bank accounts. They're not owned by anything. They are dead to themselves. That's why the, the most perfect picture of baptism is this imagery of dying to yourself. It's like we have, we, if you've seen the baptisms that we've done, we've done up here and we're doing another uh, service on um, November 24th in the evening time, uh, if you have not been baptized, consider this because what Jesus professes, he says, if you want to follow me, you died yourself. That's what the imagery in the picture of baptism is. It's laying somebody back into the water and bringing them back up to new life. So you die to yourself and you come up to new life. That's the imagery there. That that represents what Jesus did in the grave. He died, and three days later, he rose again to new life. And we do that. When we die, we go underneath the water, and we come back up to new life. That's the picture. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you need to do that. You need to do that publicly. You need to profess that. Many of you, dozens, hundreds of you in this room have already done that. Remember, think back to what that meant. You died to yourself. You no longer live for yourself, but you live, you raise up a new life in Christ. That's what that means. Now, when we get baptized here in this country, there isn't a radical change that will often happen outwardly. But let me tell you about one in another country. If you've read the Not a Fan book, you would have come across this illustration. John Oros is a leader of the church in Romania talked about during the times of the communist era um, uh, when... It meant something to be baptized in Christ. 
In fact, he says, during communism, uh, many of us preached and people would come forward after a service and they would say, I've decided to become a Christian. But we would often counsel them and say, do you realize exactly what that means? Do you realize the price that you're going to have to pay to do this? In fact, they would often say, why don't you just reconsider this for a moment because we want to make sure that you really understand what this means. Because to make this decision, you can lose and you can lose big in your life. He said he would require them to go through a three-month class. And at the end of the three-month class, then if they wanted to follow Christ, then if they wanted to get baptized, they could do that. But not before, because he wanted to make sure they knew exactly what this meant. Because he would tell them, when you come to our church and get baptized, he says, um, there will be informers who listen to your testimony. And then go take your testimony and turn your name into the government. He says, and when that happens, then the next day, your problems begin. You need to count the cost. He said, Christianity is not easy. Christianity is not cheap. You can be demoted. You can lose your job. You can lose your friends. You can lose your neighbor. You can lose your kid. You can lose your husband or your wife. You can lose your life. I thought about that. And I thought... What do we give up here in America to follow Jesus? What have you given up in the last week to follow him? What have you given up in the last year to follow him? Does that mean something to you? And I'm not asking you to go out and just do something radically crazy just to do it. I'm simply asking you to ask yourself, If following Jesus cost me everything, would it still be worth it? If following Jesus cost me my job, if following Jesus cost me more finances, if following Jesus cost me physical pain and torture and agony in this life, would I do it? And to answer that question will probably tell you, are you a fan or are you a follower? Because Jesus comes at this and he says, okay, this is not an easy thing to do. Count the cost. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Then come follow me. Christ said, or Paul said, I die every day. I would hope that we would join him in doing that.